Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Neil Entwistle spent the few years he was married living a double life trying to scam money and meet other women while pretending to be the perfect husband. When he couldn't maintain the lies any longer, he decided to destroy everything and leave the country. This is Monsters. Neil Entwistle was born on September 18, 1978, near Nottinghamshire, England. His parents were Clifford and Yvonne Entwistle, and he had one younger brother, Russell. He grew up in the city of Worksop, which was about 150 miles or 240 kilometers north of London, just north of the Sherwood Forest. When coal was discovered in the mid-1800s, Worksop experienced a rapid boom and the population exploded. The majority of the city's residents worked due to the coal mines in one way or another. Thousands of jobs in the town were created due to the discovery of coal, but good things don't last forever and by the 1980s the mines were closing. By the mid-1990s all of the mines were closed and thousands of people were out of work. Clifford worked in the coal mines and continued to work as a politician for the local labor union after they closed down. Yvonne was a mostly stay-at-home mom who would work part-time as a school cook. She made sure she was always there when the boys were home from school, and neighbors said they would regularly see her playing in the backyard with her sons, even as teenagers. 
Residents would joke about seeing Yvonne playing sports with her tall teenage sons in the backyard. Neil did well in school. His high school still has his name up on a plaque that displays the school's honor students. Neil was not a fan of his working-class Cockney accent, and it caused him to withdraw inside most of the time. His good grades helped him get into the University of York, which was about an hour north of Worksop. At university, Neil studied electrical engineering and business. These were fields that would guarantee him a better life than he believed his father had. Neil wasn't proud of his working-class upbringing in Worksop and longed for a higher-class lifestyle. It was at the University of York that Neil would meet a young student from the United States named Rachel Souza. Rachel Souza was born on December 14, 1978, in Weymouth, Massachusetts, to Paul and Priscilla Souza. She had one full brother, Jerome, but after her father died in 1988, when Rachel was only nine years old, Priscilla remarried a divorced father named Joseph Matarazzo and gave Rachel two stepbrothers and two stepsisters. When she was young, she was very interested in justice and wanted to go to law school and win a seat on the Supreme Court. She did well in school and was athletic, being a strong swimmer who trained as a lifeguard. She was considered a track star on the track and field team. After high school, Rachel started attending the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. As she worked her way to a degree in English literature, she took the opportunity to do a year of college abroad and was accepted into a program at the University of York in England. Neil and Rachel met in the University of York's rowing team, where Rachel was so good she managed to work her way onto the men's rowing team. The boats would launch from a boathouse called Love Lane, which was appropriate for the relationship that developed from there. Some people thought that Neil was standoffish, but Rachel knew that he was just reserved. Soon, Neil was introducing Rachel as, quote, the woman I'm going to spend my life with, end quote. After a brief return to Massachusetts to complete her degree at the College of the Holy Cross, Rachel moved to England and the couple rented a place together in Birmingham. Rachel taught English and drama at St. Augustine's Catholic High School and Neil began working for Kinetic, a privatized company that was a subsidiary of the British military's Research and Development Division. It was a high-security position. It wasn't long before Neil posted on an internet message board, quote, getting married to the most amazing woman in the world this summer. Rachel, end quote. On August 10, 2003, Neil and Rachel got married at the Second Parish Church of Plymouth in Manomet, Massachusetts. The reception was at the Plymouth Plantation, which is now called the Plymouth Patuxet, which is a living museum that replicates the settlement of the Plymouth colony in the 17th century. It's a whole village set up to show how people lived in 1627, with characters dressing and acting as people did at the time. I love history, and this place actually looks pretty cool. After a honeymoon on a Mediterranean cruise, they settled into their lives in the English Midlands. The happy couple were eager to start a happy family, and it was only a year before Rachel was pregnant. Lillian Entwistle was born on April 9, 2005, weighing exactly 7 pounds, about 3.2 kilograms, or half a stone for you Brits. By this time, Rachel's students at the Catholic school had become very close to their teacher, who they nicknamed Enti. They would call her at home to get help with their schoolwork and sometimes even their personal problems. Rachel had developed a close group of friends that consisted of other teachers and young mothers. Neil was the opposite of Rachel. An eternal loner, he felt like he couldn't be a success in England due to his accent. He was convinced that people only saw him as the son of a coal miner from a working-class town. It was the workshop accent that gave him away to all of the people in the area that recognized it. 
he was certain that the answer to his problems was to get out of England for a while. Rachel had no problem moving back to the U.S., especially now that Lillian was part of the family. She knew her parents would love to be able to see their granddaughter more often. She would miss the circle of friends she had developed in England, and she cried when she said goodbye to her students. But she really wanted to raise Lily in Massachusetts, where she grew up. She had a great childhood and believed her daughter would have the same. Neil left his job at Kinetic, telling them that quote-unquote domestic problems were causing him to have to move to the United States. In September of 2005, the Entwistle family moved to the U.S. where they initially lived with Rachel's mother and stepfather in Carver, Massachusetts. Joe and Priscilla were thrilled to have their new granddaughter living with them. Priscilla spoiled her like only a grandmother could, and Joe would come right home from work at his own business, Jay Matarazzo and Son Electric, wash his hands, and pick up Lily for a snuggle. Joe's delicate nature with his granddaughter was a stark contrast to his rugged exterior. He was a tall, broad man with big hands and slicked-back graying hair. He was an avid gun collector who had a number of rare and antique guns along with the ones he would regularly take out shooting. In an effort to include his son-in-law in the family activities, he invited him to go target shooting with him and some of the other Matarazzo men. When Joe brought out the gun case with a variety of handguns in it, Neil picked out a long-barreled .22 caliber revolver to use. It was a smaller gun than the other men in the group used, but as a first-time shooter, he didn't want to start out with something too big. After a day of shooting at paper targets, they went back to the Matarazzo's house, where Neil watched as Joe placed the guns back into their lockbox and placed the key in a designated spot on the kitchen counter. Neil was the only person who knew that he had quit his job at Kinetic. The family, including Rachel, believed that he was still working remotely and was receiving $10,000 a month in payment from an offshore account. He was looking for a job locally, maybe not that hard, but he had gone to a couple of interviews, but never got a call back. He began maintaining his ruse by putting everything on credit. When they went out to dinner, with anyone, he would always whip out a credit card and pick up the tab. He tried to start his own business at one point, but it doesn't sound like he really did a great job. Priscilla said he once gave her a business card that was just a folded piece of paper taped together that read, ENT, Embedded New Technologies. He made a website that said he provided complex technology services, but Neil didn't even have his own computer at the time. Neil was working on his in-law's personal computer. He also listed his business address as their home address. In January of 2006, Neil convinced the owner of a $549,000 four-bedroom, 2,432-square-foot house at Six Cubs Path to allow them to sign a short-term, three-month lease to provide time for his offshore accounts to be moved to the U.S. Then, once all of his money was available, they could buy the house. The rent was agreed on to be $2,700 a month, with an initial $5,400 payment up front for first and last month's rent. The house was at the end of a cul-de-sac and was nearly brand new. It had a hot tub in the backyard and high cathedral ceilings. The family had no furniture, so Neil went out and put $3,000 worth of furniture on credit and bought a nice mattress for another $3,000, again, on credit. The house was in Hopkinton, Massachusetts, about an hour northwest of Carver and 26.2 miles from Boston. The town is most famous for being the starting point of the Boston Marathon. It's been the starting point since 1924. It was as they were moving into their new house that Rachel had tried to use one of Neil's credit cards and found that it had been frozen. She tried to discuss their finances with him, but he wouldn't answer her questions. 
As much as she wanted to trust her husband with their finances, being left in the dark after having a credit card declined was starting to worry her. Even though she wasn't aware of the serious debt that Neil was getting the family into, she also had about $18,000 left on her student loans. She worried about paying that back, having no idea that Neil had run up thirty dollars to $40,000 in credit card debt. Neil was still not searching hard for a job. There was a pretty good tech industry in the area, but Neil wasn't interested in working for his money. He developed a number of websites that offered scammy get-rich-quick schemes that were geared to only benefit Neil. Neil had fallen for one scam himself, called Huge Millionaire Moneymaker, because, you know, that seems legit. Unsurprisingly, he did not become a huge millionaire moneymaker, but it did give him an idea. He could set up his own website and offer people scam advice on getting rich for a fee. He actually started scam websites back in 2002, while he was working full-time, probably trying to get rich in order to prove he was better than his working-class upbringing that he was so insecure about. His first website was called Million Maker. There's not a lot of creativity going on with these get-rich-quick schemes. It claimed that, for just £2,000, they could buy a startup kit that would make them earn £2 million a year. The site read, quote, With Million Maker, you can be sure your investment will pay off, and best of all, there's no waiting years for your return on investment. We will show you, step-by-step, how to successfully promote your adult internet business and generate at least $6,000 per month within the first six months. I'm pretty sure that math is a pretty big part of an electrical engineering degree, so he should know that $6,000 a month is only $72,000 a year. How long does it take to get to $2 million a year? Over the next few years, he created websites called DeepHotSex.com and BigPenisManual.com. The sites are no longer active. I checked. For research. The first site was said to be a cheap porn site that advertised paid access to videos of quote-unquote barely legal girls. The other was a site that claimed it could teach methods for increasing penis size. The site read, quote, For years we have published information in the field of natural penis enlargement. We have helped over 50,000 men enhance their penis by increasing the overall length and width by up to 3 inches. These incredible techniques have been used by many people that do not believe in drugs, pumps, or expensive surgery. You owe it to yourself to sign up today and take advantage of our fantastic program. End quote. Unfortunately, there are enough men out there who are insecure about the size of their penis that Neil actually made some money off of this. He made some money to help survive the months he was without a job, but it wasn't enough, so he supplemented with credit cards. Neil moved on to trying to sell copies of software that someone could use to send out spam mail so they could also become an internet scammer. He also sold CD-ROMs that contained business manuals, the Big Penis Manual, and other information with get-rich-quick info on eBay. For a few years, he successfully sold these discs online, but by January of 2006, he had started to take the money but never send the product and received enough complaints that eBay shut down his account and opened an investigation. Maybe it was Neil's years of dishonest behavior involving sex websites, or maybe it was just who he was going to become, but eventually Neil became obsessed with online sex websites and escorts. He regularly visited sites like HotLocalEscorts.com or my favorite, HalfPriceEscorts.com because, you know, he needed to save money where he could. He was out of work. The Entwistles moved into the large house on Cubs Path on January 14, 2006. 
When they finished moving in all of their stuff on the 16th, everyone was exhausted, so Rachel put Lily to bed and went to sleep a little early. Neil used the time alone to make some internet searches on his new laptop, purchased on credit, of course. The first thing Neil started to search was for things like quick suicide method, best way to kill someone, and knife-in-neck kill. He clicked on websites that described the cons of stabbing someone to death, as well as a site that promoted mass euthanasia as a means of restoring the planet. He then did a search of the word euthanasia, looking for a definition. After finishing his search of death, he turned to sex. He went to a website called Adult Friend Finder, where he left a message that read, quote, I'm in a current relationship, but looking for a bit more fun in the bedroom and a very discreet relationship just for fun, end quote. With it, he posted a picture of himself leaning back in a lawn chair with his hands around his erect penis. After exchanging messages with a few different women, he closed the laptop and went to bed. That week consisted of unpacking all of their belongings from the box they had shipped over from England. Rachel wanted the house to be in order by that weekend because a friend of hers from the College of the Holy Cross, Joanna Gately, and her sister Maureen were coming over for dinner on Saturday. Rachel was excited to see her old friend, but didn't want them to come into a house in disarray. This kept Rachel exhausted, which gave Neil a number of nights to himself. That week, he continued looking up information about death. He searched murder, suicide by knife, and killing someone. I was going to say that his ISP should have flagged this behavior, but then I remembered what I do for a living. If anything ever happens to my wife, as soon as they check my browser history, I'm going to prison. Once Neil was satisfied with this search for death, he again turned to sex, specifically looking for escorts in the Boston and Worcester area. He called a couple of the services and printed out some maps of their locations before shutting the computer off and going to bed. Rachel had made a short phone call to her mother on Thursday, January 19th, and set up a brunch date for that Saturday. Priscilla was going to go to her daughter's new home, visit with the baby, and help Rachel finish unpacking. On Friday, January 20th, Neil told Rachel that he was going to the mall to shop for some computer parts. What he really did was drive to the Matarazzo's house in Carver. His in-laws weren't home, so he entered the house with a key, got the key to the gun lock boxes off of the kitchen counter, retrieved the 22 caliber revolver he had practiced shooting with, and returned home. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. 
This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. At some point in the morning, Rachel was sitting in the master bedroom holding Lily, who was facing away from her. He looked in both of their eyes as he killed his wife and daughter. It's unclear which order he shot in, but authorities believe that he shot Rachel first, then placed the barrel of the gun directly on Lily's stomach and pulled the trigger. The bullet entered Lily's abdomen, and the kinetic energy of the bullet destroyed her internal organs. It exited her back and entered Rachel's left breast. He then thoroughly cleaned up, probably showering, and left the house, driving back to Carver to return the gun to the lockbox and placing the key in its rightful place on the kitchen counter. He drove to the Logan Airport in Boston, where he left the family car in the parking garage. He used an ATM to withdraw $800 in cash from various credit cards and purchased a one-way flight to Heathrow Airport in London. Neil's flight departed Logan Airport at 8.15 a.m. on Saturday, January 20th, he arrived in London that same evening. Back in Hopkinton, Priscilla wasn't able to get any response from Rachel at all on Friday or Saturday and she was beginning to worry. When she showed up at the house for their brunch date, nobody answered the door, so she left a note in the mailbox that read, quote, Where are you? Call me, Mom. End quote. That would ultimately cause Joanna the most worry when she arrived at the house on Cubs Path with her sister on Saturday evening. When she pulled into the driveway, the snow-covered home had all of the lights on, so Joanna was even more concerned when nobody answered the door. She called Rachel's cell phone and could hear it ringing inside the house, but there was no answer. She looked over and noticed the note in the mailbox, and when she read it, she became short of breath. Rachel was not the type of person that would ghost her friend, and the fact that her own mother was looking for her meant that something was definitely wrong. Joanna called Priscilla first and let her know that she was at Rachel's house because they were supposed to have dinner with her, but nobody was answering the door. She informed her that she saw her note and she thought that something was wrong. When Priscilla agreed with Joanna, the woman and her sister got in their car and went to the Hopkinton police station. Though a missing persons report might have been ignored in a bigger city with a busier police department, the dispatcher at the Hopkinton police station radioed patrol officers Sergeant Michael Sutton and Officer Aaron O'Neill, asking them to conduct a welfare check at Six Cubs Path. It helped that Priscilla had also called the police station and talked to the same dispatcher immediately after hanging up with Joanna. The Gately sisters returned to the Entwistle home and arrived shortly before the patrol officers. Sutton and O'Neill checked the perimeter of the home and found that all of the doors and windows were locked. They noted that lights were on in the house, a TV was on in the living room, and they could hear a dog barking from inside the residence. When they arrived back at the front of the house, the sergeant pulled a video store membership card out of his wallet and used it to jimmy the door open. As they entered the house, they called out for anyone who was in the home, but got no answer. The initial fear when an entire family is not answering the door or phone calls, especially in the winter, is that there may have been a carbon monoxide leak that knocked out or killed the family. They hope for the former and that they can get in the house and save their lives. In this case, the dog, a basset hound named Sally, was barking from inside a crate in a room off of the kitchen. 
Clearly, there was no carbon monoxide leak because a dog, being smaller than an adult human, would usually succumb to the odorless gas first. Sutton and O'Neill checked the first floor, living room, dining room, and kitchen, but there was no sign of the residence. Then they split up and O'Neill went down to the basement while Sutton went upstairs to check the bedrooms. The basement was cleared and upstairs, Sutton noted that classical music was playing in what was clearly the baby's room, but there was no baby. The upstairs bathroom had water in the bathtub, like someone was about to give Lily a bath, but it looked like they left before the bath could happen. The master bedroom had a pile of blankets on the bed, like it had been slept in and the comforter was just tossed onto the bed without making it, but there was no sign of anyone. Neil and Rachel shared one vehicle, a white BMW SUV, and it was not in the garage. Sutton called dispatch to get the license plate number of their vehicle and ran a search for any reports of automobile accidents or abandoned vehicles, but nothing came back. At that point, there wasn't much the police could do. They had to assume the Entwistles left and didn't tell their friends or family, which wasn't a crime. They put out a general broadcast with the description and plate number of the BMW, so, in the event they got spotted by police anywhere, the Hopkinton police would be notified. The sergeant also allowed Joanna to take Sally for a little walk and then put her back in the kennel. Joanna had no intention of leaving her friend's house that night. She parked her car in front of the house, and she and Maureen planned to wait right there until they knew that the Entwistles were safe. It was January in New England, and they were in for a long, cold night. Joe Flaherty had been an investigator for the Massachusetts State Police. He had been the lead investigator for the Crime Prevention and Control Unit of the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, where he had a 100% clearance rate for homicides. He was a well-respected name in law enforcement in the area, and he just so happened to be Joe Matarazzo's former neighbor, and they had been pretty good friends for about 30 years. Joe called his old friend and told him what had been going on with his stepdaughter. Flattery told Matarazzo that he would make some calls and urged him not to go into the house to make sure he didn't disturb any evidence. While Flattery was doing that, Joe and Priscilla met up with Rachel and they all went to the Hopkinton police station. They were at the police station talking with Sergeant Sutton when Flaherty called the station to let them know that he was involved with the situation and offered any help they needed from the state police. The little push from Flaherty put the officers in Hopkinton into overdrive. Someone started calling around trying to see if the BMW had any type of GPS, but there was no luck. Sutton and O'Neill went back to the Entwistle's neighborhood and started questioning neighbors, but since they had just moved in that week, most of the residents in the area didn't even know who they were. Flaherty was able to convince the Hopkinton Police Department to call in a detective on his day off so they could start a proper investigation. Joanna told police that, early that morning, she could hear Sally barking and went to the neighbor's house to see if they happened to have a key for emergencies. One neighbor did happen to know the garage code from the previous residence, and it still worked, so Joanne went into the house and got the dog, but she made sure not to touch anything. She gave the code to the police so they could enter the house to see if they could find any clues as to where the family might have gone. Detective Scott Van Ralton arrived at the scene and joined Sergeant Sutton as he prepared to enter the house. As soon as the garage door started to open, the officers could smell a foul odor. It had not been there the previous day, but it was very obvious now. As they walked through the house and up the stairs, they both put their hands over their faces to try to block out as much of the smell as they could. As they got to the top of the stairs, the smell was overpowering. At the doorway into the master bedroom, the smell was the strongest. 
Sutton noted that the condition of the bedroom looked identical to how he had seen it the day before. As Van Ralton was looking in the other rooms, Sutton noticed a watch on the floor next to the bed. He walked over to the bed and slowly lifted one corner of the comforter. When he saw a woman's foot, he called for Van Ralton to come over and take a look. When he pulled the comforter back up, the detective looked down under the blanket and was confronted by the face of a deceased baby with a young woman lying in the fetal position next to her. Sutton gently put the comforter back the way it was and radioed to dispatch to call the medical examiner. Soon, investigators with the crime scene services section of the Massachusetts State Police were at the house going over every detail with a fine-toothed comb. Not long after, the medical examiner picked up the bodies of Rachel and Lillian and took them back to his office. It was determined that Rachel died from a gunshot wound to the head, and Lily died from a gunshot wound to the abdomen, which traveled through her body and entered Rachel's chest. The other thing that was found on Lily was bruising around her face like she had been beaten or at least slapped really hard. No explanation was ever given for why there was bruising on Lily's face. The Entwistle's white BMW was located at the Logan Airport in the West Garage Area DD. The doors were locked, but the keys were in the ignition. Authorities popped the lock, and inside the car, they found a second set of keys that would turn out to be the keys to the Matarazzo's house. There was a water bottle in the cup holder and a baby seat in the back seat. The vehicle was swabbed for traces of blood and gunshot residue, but none was found. While the investigation was going full steam in Massachusetts, Neil's father, Cliff, called the Matarazzo house, and Joe answered the phone. Cliff told Joe that he had heard about what happened. He said that Neil had told him that he left the house for 20 minutes, and when he got home, he found Rachel and Lily dead. So he called the police, and then he went to the Matarazzo house, but they weren't home. Freaking out and unsure of what to do, he drove to the airport and called his dad, telling him he was going to fly home. He said that Neil's flight should have arrived in London by then, but he didn't know where Neil was. Joe hung up on him. Not long after, Neil called the Matarazzo house and told Joe a similar story, but he left out the part about calling the police, since Joe was well aware that nobody had called the police on Friday. Joe told Neil to talk to the investigators, and then he hung up on him, too. The district attorney held a press conference to announce the development. Yesterday afternoon, approximately 6.30 or so, on what was a fairly routine well-being check, at 6 Cubs Path, in Hopkinton. The uh, Hopkinton police went to check on Rachel Entwistle, age 27, her husband Neil Entwistle, also age 27, and their nine-month-old daughter, Lillian Entwistle. When police did enter, they discovered upstairs on a bed the bodies of Rachel Entwistle and her daughter. At that time, there was no obvious uh, signs of foul play. Uh, ironically, police uh, believed they were deceased, but did not uh, see any signs of violence or what the cause of death would be. We do believe, subject to the autopsy reports, that they were the victim of probably a small caliber uh, gunshot, and it may just have been one, uh, through both the mother and the child. I have a photograph, it's a, it's a registry of motor vehicles photograph of Rachel Entwistle. Uh, we do not at this time have a photograph of the child. We have been in the process of locating Neil Entwistle, who authorities believe is traveling. Do you not have a picture of him, Arthur? I do not. Do is it fair to call Mr. Entwistle a suspect? 
And no. It, it, well, I, I'm not going to label anybody a suspect at this time. Do you know where he may be? We have some ideas where he may be. Okay. Massachusetts State Police Sergeant Robert Manning called Neil at his parents' house and workshop and had a two-hour conversation with him. As soon as Neil got on the phone, Sergeant Manning introduced himself and told him that his family was deceased, to which Neil replied, quote, I know, end quote. Manning clarified that he said he knew, and Neil said yes, he knew his family was dead. He explained that he went out on Friday the 20th in the morning to go shopping for some computer parts. He went to Staples, and then he was going to go to Walmart, but he never made it there. He was out for about two hours and got back home at about 11 a.m. When asked why he never made it to Walmart, he had no explanation. When pressed about what else he had done while he was out for two hours, he also couldn't give an answer. This conversation with the detective revealed the second lie Neil had told his father. Cliff said that Neil told him he had left the house for about 20 minutes. When Neil told this detective, he was gone for about two hours. Neil also told his father that he had called 911, which he never did. Neil explained to Sergeant Manning that when he went into the house, he went upstairs where he found the bodies of Rachel and Lily. He said that he saw Lily had a gunshot wound and there was blood on her mouth and nose. But when investigators were on the scene, they didn't see either of those things until the bodies were moved. So how did Neil see them? When I first looked, it just looked like she was asleep. Okay, was she right on, were they right on top of the bed? No, they were, the, the covers were partially up. Okay. Um, so, they, they were under the covers, but not, kind of maybe, maybe half, half three quarters. When I walked in, I couldn't see Lily, I could only see, I could only see Rachel, and, and she just looked asleep. It, you know, I'm not, at first it didn't look anything wrong, but why would she have been in bed at that time, and where was Lily? Mm -hmm. and so, as I went up, I, the first, the first thing I noticed was just her colour, she was kind of pale, and then, and then as I got closer, I could see the blood, and that's when I saw Lily, Lily's the top half of the the face was out, and um, I I pulled the the covers back and <sighs> uh, that's when I saw Lily. Lily was such a mess. Where did you see some blood, sir? Well. There was, there was, there wasn't any on Rachel. I, I didn't, I couldn't see anything on Rachel. It was all on, it was all on Lily. And she, she did, what sticks in my mind is that her whole, the whole mouth, mouth and nose, were, um, covered. They were, it was almost like it, it was bubbles. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I mean, it's obvious that they were, that it was obvious that they weren't alive anymore. Okay. In this version of events, his wife and daughter are dead, and he didn't know what happened. This discovery made him freak out, and he decided that the next thing he was going to do was kill himself. 
Not call police just in case he was wrong and one or both of them could be saved. Not get justice for his wife and daughter. A random person killed his family and his next course of action was suicide. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte. But for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month. And you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. I went downstairs and I, I, I took one of the knives out of the, uh, the, the block of knives we had in the kitchen. Yes. Or, you know, maybe I could, you know, but I just, I, I just didn't have the courage to do it. I, and as I was, and uh, I think, I think then, I think I pondered on that for a minute and then maybe got in the car. I mean, it could have been longer, but I, I then got in the car and started to drive towards towards Carver. And I um, didn't really think about the time at that point, but when I realized that they, they weren't going to be in, I, I you know, knew that Joe has um, guns in the house. I thought maybe I could finish, um, kind of get myself you know that way I uh, yeah and I, I got to the house and the, the key used to be on on the the, the car key so I yeah uh, but it, Rachel must have taken it off or you been told there was I couldn't couldn't get in the house so he couldn't bring himself to commit suicide with a knife Let's not forget that he searched online for information regarding suicide with a knife and stabbing someone in the neck. It's unclear if he was suicidal at the time, or he was trying to plan a way to murder Rachel and make it look like a suicide. He claimed he went to the Matarazzo's house to try to get a gun to kill himself, but they weren't home and he had no way to get inside, except that the key to their house had already been found in his car in the airport parking lot. Authorities believed he actually went to their house to return the gun to the lockbox. Neil knew that Joe and Priscilla worked during the day and that they wouldn't be home, so he could go in, grab the gun, and then return it before they ever got home. It seemed that Joe took gun safety very seriously, and not only did he have these guns in a lockbox, but he also had trigger locks on them. 
Joe and his two sons, Michael and Anthony, actually took the gun shooting on Saturday the 21st, and they noticed that the trigger lock on the 22 caliber revolver wasn't on properly. Neil told the sergeant that after he left the Matarazzos, he drove around for a while until he ended up at the airport. I uh, ended up at the airport, at Logan Airport. Okay. And, um, I, I mean, it was the only place, it was the only place that was familiar. I, I pulled in, I pulled into the car park and I sat there for a little while. It, I wanted to kind of let the emotions out, but nothing would come out. It just, it, it wasn't, it, it just didn't seem right, you know. There was, there was just, it just wasn't right what had, what I'd seen, what had just happened. Then Neil figured his best option would be to fly back to England to be with his family. He seems to think that the fact that he's in another country has affected his feelings about the death of his wife and daughter. I don't know what I'm thinking at the moment. I just, it, I think it's almost because I'm here, it doesn't even seem real. It's just a quality void. Yeah, well, let me tell you, it is real. Okay? Yeah. And um, it is real. And, and something happened over here. And... I, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get as much information as I can. Yeah. And I'm taking you, um, I'm believing what you tell me. Only, um, I can tell you, I have a hard time understanding why you want, why you didn't call 911. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I don't. He just sounds like he's too cool with the situation. Sergeant Manning assures him that this is real, and he's like, yeah. Neil stayed at his parents' house for the next two weeks. During that time, the police continued to investigate the crime. Rachel and Lily were buried together in the same coffin, and Neil did not return to the U.S. for his wife and daughter's funeral. As soon as Sergeant Manning hung up from his conversation with Neil, he went straight to the Matarazzos and collected all of Joe's guns. Testing determined that Rachel and Lily were shot with Joe's .22 caliber revolver. DNA on the gun's grip matched Neil's DNA, and Rachel's DNA was also found on the gun, but none of it was on the grip. Rachel's DNA was found on the front and inside of the barrel, meaning the gun was close enough to Rachel when she was shot in the head that her DNA blew back onto the gun barrel. Detective Ralton and Sergeant Manning flew to England on January 25th, where they had a meeting scheduled with Neil at the American Embassy, but he never showed up. After the deaths of Rachel and Lily, Neil did everything he possibly could to look like a suspect. He didn't call 911, he fled the country, he showed no emotion, he lied to everyone, and he failed to show up with a meeting with the police after they flew across the Atlantic Ocean. On February 6th, Neil left his parents' home and workshop and traveled to London where he stayed with some friends he had known from college. Those friends would later tell authorities that Neil had told them, after finding his wife and daughter dead, he went to Carver where he spent time with his in-laws mourning their loss. He then began feeling like an outsider and decided to return to England to mourn with his own family. None of that was true. Around this time, Neil also placed a call to a lawyer who represented the owner of the house on Cub's Path. He left a message on the answering machine where he calmly identified himself as if he were conducting business as usual and said, quote, 
I have no interest in the house anymore. You can send me back the security deposit and last month's rent. I do want to pick up the furniture and my belongings. This needs to be taken care of in the appropriate manner, end quote. Suddenly, there was a pause and Neil added, quote, I'll probably leave everything to Rachel's family, Priscilla and Joe Matarazzo. They live in Carver, but we need to discuss this, end quote. It was like he suddenly realized how bad he sounded and he wanted to save face. He supposedly found his wife and daughter dead in the house, just left them there and flew back to England, and then called and requested his security deposit, last month's rent, and belongings back. What fucking world does this guy live in? On February 8th, officers at Scotland Yard were notified that Neil had left his friend's house and was on a train headed out of London. Fearing that Neil was going into hiding, authorities stopped the train and Neil was arrested. When Neil was taken into custody, authorities found a piece of paper folded up in his pocket that was actually a page torn out of a newspaper from the section where escorts advertised their services. A search of Neil's recent internet activity uncovered more searches of escort sites in the time after Rachel and Lily had died. That same day, a judge had signed an arrest warrant for Neil Entwistle and Detective Van Raalten and Sergeant Manning were back on a flight to England. Neil eventually waived his right to an extradition hearing and was immediately flown back to the United States. Once back in Massachusetts, with the evidence against him mounting, Neil's story changed in order to try to fill in some of the holes in his initial story. Now Neil claimed that he had come home from shopping and found Rachel and Lily dead and found Joe's twenty-two caliber revolver near them and he knew that Rachel had committed murder-suicide. He then took the gun to the Matarazzo's house, entered with the key that was found in the BMW, and returned the gun to the lockbox. Why did he do this, you ask? To protect Rachel's honor, so people wouldn't know that she had killed her daughter and herself. Now, in this scenario, Rachel would have to hold Lily in her left arm with the baby facing out. She couldn't shoot herself in the head first because that's the shot that killed her. So she'd reach over with her right hand, point the gun at Lily, and shoot a bullet that went through the baby and then herself. Then she would reach up, point the gun directly down at her head, just past her hairline, and shoot herself. The gun used measured about 11 inches from the back of the grip to the end of the barrel, based on crime scene photos. That's about the same length as this gun right here. It's not possible to hold the gun in a conventional manner and be able to point the gun straight back at herself or straight down at her own head. Even with a shorter gun, it's not possible. She could have held the gun backwards and pulled the trigger with her thumb. That would have made it possible for Rachel to shoot the gun herself the way the shots were fired, but why? Who decides to shoot their baby, or anyone for that matter, and they do it in a way that the bullet will go through the person and into themselves by holding the gun backwards? It just seems convoluted. The defense made a couple of ballsy requests before the trial started. First, they requested that Neil be able to get out on bail and go back to England to live with his parents while he awaited trial. It's been said that some people at the court actually laughed when they heard about the request. It was denied. Then they tried to have all of the evidence from the Entwistle's house excluded because the police didn't have a warrant when they searched the house. It was also denied. The judge determined that the police entered the home legally due to exigent circumstances, and when they found two dead bodies, they were allowed to begin investigating. The trial began in June of 2008, and Neil stuck to his story that Rachel killed Lily and then herself. Neil did not testify in his own defense, and the defense called no witnesses. They argued that the forensic investigators made mistakes. 
Their proof was that they didn't notice the bullet wound on Rachel's head when the bodies were first discovered. So what else did they miss? But a 22 caliber bullet is tiny, and the gunshot wound was in her hairline. Also, it's not the job of a forensic investigator to identify all of the bullet wounds on a body. They can get an estimate, but the medical examiner is the one who would more closely examine the body and report the exact amount of gunshot wounds. There are countless cases where detectives or crime scene investigators on the scene count bullet wounds or don't see bullet wounds, and the ME tells them something different later. That doesn't mean forensic investigators missed evidence at the scene, because identifying all the bullet wounds in a body isn't their job. Finding physical evidence on a scene is their job. I'm sure if the medical examiner searched the crime scene, they would most likely miss some evidence, because that's not their job. Identifying bullet holes in bodies is their job. See how that works? The other main argument by the defense was that the investigators found gunshot residue on Rachel's hands, which meant she must have fired the gun. They said that claim was reinforced by the fact that there was no gunshot residue found in the BMW after it was recovered, showing that Neil didn't have any GSR on him or else it would have transferred to the interior of the car. But just having a gun fired near her would cause GSR to end up on her hands. And I say this every time someone points out that a suspect has no blood or GSR on their bodies. Neil was in his own house. He could have washed up, completely showered, changed his clothes. This argument only works if a suspect allegedly killed someone and was caught before they had time to clean themselves up. The prosecutors countered that argument by explaining that none of Rachel's DNA was found on the gun's grip. The only DNA found on the grip of the gun was from Joe, his two sons, and Neil. Now, Neil's DNA could have still been on the gun from when he had shot it previously, but the most important part was that Rachel's was not. And Rachel firing that gun was the only explanation for Neil not being the shooter. But she didn't. It didn't help that Neil not only showed no real emotion during the trial, but he always had this weird smirk on his face. Then there was this weird reaction when the prosecution showed pictures of Rachel and Lily's bodies. Neil Entwistle was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to two life sentences without the possibility of parole. When the trial was over, Neil's parents, Cliff and Yvonne Entwistle, made a statement. We wish to make the following statement. We know that our son Neil is innocent. And we are devastated to learn that the evidence points to Rachel murdering our grandchild. And then committing suicide. I knew Rachel was depressed. Our son will now go to jail for loving, honouring and protecting his wife's memory. Get the fuck out of here. After their statement, a journalist asked Yvonne what she did to help Rachel if she knew she was depressed, but she didn't answer. I believe that she's now using hindsight to fill in gaps to make the idea that Rachel killed herself more believable. She hadn't thought that Rachel was depressed until Neil told her that she committed suicide. Then she thought back and went, well yeah, there was this one time that she said this, or there was this time where I thought she looked tired and seemed depressed. Now she claims that she knew Rachel was depressed, because if Rachel wasn't depressed, then she wouldn't have killed herself. And if she didn't kill herself, it means that Yvonne raised a murderer. 
I get why some parents live in denial that their kids are murderers. They don't want to believe that they raised a human being that turned out to be an evil monster. As a parent, I understand not wanting to believe that. That just makes you human. But going around and soiling the victim's name by claiming she killed herself and her baby because you don't want to accept that your son is a murderer, well, that just makes you an asshole. While in jail awaiting his trial, Neil sent a letter to his parents requesting that, if he died, he be cremated and his ashes be sprinkled over the grave of Rachel and Lily, something that Priscilla Matarazzo said would never happen. Since his conviction, Neil has gained some pen pals who he's written to telling a third version of the events of February 20, 2006. In this new version, he was at home all morning and was in the kitchen when he heard a gunshot. He ran upstairs where he saw Rachel put a gun up to her own head and pull the trigger. Because, you know, the more times you change your story to fit the evidence, the more likely it is to be true, right? If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home okay. It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. 
This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CERTAIreland.ie. 